You are now tuned in to the December 26th podcast, where we encourage you to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Hey, 26er fam. Welcome to the December 26er podcast. I am your host, Delisha, and this episode features Stuart Cornelius. Stuart manages the partnerships team at Twitter and also co-hosts the Someone Will Be Offended and Marketing Misfits podcasts. A first-generation Ghanaian-American, Stuart spent his formative years in East Flatbush, Brooklyn. But after the passing of his mother when he was just 12 years old, Stuart moved to Silver Spring, Maryland with his stepfather, where he inevitably experienced a shift from city to more suburban life, which also meant no longer attending a school that had an almost all-Black population. But for college, he chose an HBCU and headed off to Morehouse, where he built a formidable network of his peers across the AUC and continues to reap the benefits of that network today. Stewart started his media career as an account service representative at Turner Broadcasting, then transitioned to a sales role at Hulu, which was just five years old at the time. During his time there, he successfully built and managed a $45 million book of business. But when the opportunity to join Twitter presented itself nearly two years later, he took the leap. And he spent the last seven years building an impressive trajectory at the company, including creating internal support and structure for hiring members of the African diaspora. So without further ado, here's his story. Stuart, welcome to the December 26th podcast. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thank you for asking. And thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Thank you for being here. I knew as soon as you appeared on screen that your energy was right. I mean, DeMarcus had already prepped me and said, this is going to be good. Um, But I just felt that good, light energy, which always keeps me motivated and encouraged in these conversations. So thank you for bringing that to the table. That is very kind. I appreciate that. I am feeling quite well today, so I hope I can pass it on. And you got the fly mic, so you got the right setup. We we out here. This is is all COVID expenses, okay? You just start buying. That's really what happened. Liz, that's exactly what happened. You have companies giving home office, uh, you know, allowances Mm -hmm. and all this other stuff. Oh, so you're hip. You know, okay, you know about the, yeah, okay. Yes. This is going to be good. (laughs) Yes, I I work in F4A tech company. I don't know how it goes. You know about it. So yes, 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 exactly. (laughs) So let's get into it. Who is Stuart Cornelius? Ooh. You know, you know, this is like this is one of those things that you would assume that by this age of my life, I'd have the like quick elevator pitch. But I will, I'll keep it very simple. I, I am I am a community servant. Um, I am a person that is my love language is acts of service. And so I'm very much so a person that is looking to do for other people. I'm so much so a giver. So I, I am that person. I'm the person to connect you to somebody if you have a good idea. I'm the person to whiteboard some ideas if you if you need it. I'm the person to go check on your mom if they live down the street and you're out of town. I'm that person. I'm, I'm def- very much so a servant. So where do you think that comes from? Oh, well, my family in, and I are from Ghana, West Africa. And so I think that it really does come from my mom. She's definitely that person. Um, she's, she's the person to, you know, cook you jollof on the day that you had a bad day or, you know, I don't know, whatever it is that it takes to bring a smile to your face. I think that she has always been that person. She's the person that writes you a handwritten card for your birthday and put it in the mail. So I think that's really where I get it from. But I, I get joy from seeing other people being happy and I get joy from helping other people on days where it's probably not not a great day. But if I can make you smile, I, I feel good about myself and I know that you feel good to, to know that someone cares. So talk to me about your upbringing. You know, we've had many folks on the show who are first generation 
here and and I've heard many versions of the the immigration story. Oh yeah. What is yours? So my my grandfather got here probably like in the 60s, I want to say like 65 something like that. And um he married my grandmother who was actually like my step grandmother if you look at it that way. But so he was the first of the family to get here and pretty much was the conduit for everyone getting here. My uncles, my mom, um, even my father, he, he was he was able uh, to get him here in the States as well. So that's really the that's really where the journey started. And, you know, it started in East Flatbush, Brooklyn, um, which, you know, again, I, I had this conversation with DeMarcus, but I had a very unique perch because in my house, I had a very traditional Ghanaian upbringing. And then, you know, at school, you know, I had a traditional Black American experience. And so I I see the beauty and the struggle in both people. Um, and then put against the backdrop of East Flatbush, Brooklyn, which is a traditionally, you know, heavily Caribbean neighborhood. You know what I'm saying? So I'm, you know, I'm eating oxtails and, and rice and peas and I'm eating jollof and goat stew at the crib so i'm like i'm getting all of these different unique kind of experiences and so um you know my grandfather was very much so a father to me um my my grandmother was a very loving and giving person she's from saint vincent and we were i mean it was it was a great upbringing it's one of those things where you know you didn't know we didn't have any money but we didn't really have any money um but it didn't feel that way you know, like it didn't feel that way. My neighborhood felt connected. And, you know, I know Mr. Charlie across the street, who was a contractor. I knew his grandkids and we all played together and went to church and went on church trips and stuff together. So I mean, my upbringing was was full of love. Like pe- the people that, you know, were there for me taught me a lot. And and a lot of those lessons I still kind of use today. And so I'm really, really grateful for that kind of upbringing, stability of, you know, community acts of service. And, and also just, you know, from an education standpoint, you know, West Africans don't play that. So go ahead and get, get, get your books. You know what I'm saying? You know, it, it was one of those, like, you don't have a girlfriend. Your girlfriend is the books, my G. Like, you're not, you know what I'm saying? Like, you shouldn't be focused on nothing else. And so I carried that throughout, you know, throughout my life that putting education first was, was a thing. I was a tinkerer as a kid. I used to take toys apart, put them back together. Um, you know, I put, t- I put computers together in high school. I was very much so that nerd, like comic books, like legit, like the stereotypical nerdy nerd, like Star Trek, Star Wars, Marvel comics, all of that stuff. But um, yeah, well, I guess I'm very much so that person today as well. But um, yeah, no, it was a great upbringing. I mean, look, I think some of the biggest lessons has always have always been, you know, discipline, empathy and and really just trying to overcome like that's always been the theme of of my uh, my upbringing and my childhood so i'm very happy to even be able to be here talking to you because there's so many there's so many places that stuff could have gone left so i'm just happy that we on the we on the right side of of my own personal history absolutely and you mentioned this this, this concept of being a Black American out in the world at school and being a Ghanaian at home. Correct. Was that duality a conscious thing for you? Like, do you feel like when you left the house in the morning, there was a switch that flipped for sake of, I don't know, integrating, conforming, assimilating? Do you think that that's something you were actively working towards? I don't think that I was conscious of it in the moment, but I knew that we were different. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like, I knew that in school, we we're one way. And we're, well, we're really just one way, but my house looks different than your house. That that's what I that's what I knew. Um, and I think for me, it really was, it really was just kind of 
putting them on to what I was on. You know what I'm saying? Like when we had when we had like culture night and people were bringing their stuff and I'm bringing, you know, fufu and, and some other stuff and I'm wearing my my traditionals. You know, I was I was you know, it, it was it was tough for me because it was like they didn't really understand that, you know, and it was a little bit different. But when you see my name on paper, it says Stuart Cornelius. They're like, are, are you sure you're African? Like, what is ah. or are you are you trying too hard to do this thing that, you know, you thought was maybe cool? And I was like, for with all the ridicule I'm getting, I don't think that I would choose this per se, but this is just who I am. Um but I think over time, it got a whole lot easier to to kind of just be who I am and and to talk about my culture more and to teach people some of the dialects. I speak two African dialects, Fante and Tree. So um, it's very different. It's, it's it, when you're exposed to something like that, and and you didn't have it in your mind that that person was capable or had that in them. It's a little off putting. Um, but you know, I think I think over time, you just get better at being comfortable in your skin. You know, when you're a kid, it's just hard. It's, it's hard. To, to figure out what your identity is. Um, and once you find that, you, you find comfort in, in knowing who you are. So you mentioned that you were a nerd who were into all these nerdy things. Oh, yeah. It, being a Trekkie, that's like next level, right? I, it's, it's yeah, it's, <laughs> it's kind of gross. Yeah, and I feel you. <laughs> I will admit, I don't understand the Star Trek phenomenon. Yeah. Um, but I can re- relate to some of the other nerdy pieces. But how did you embrace say the arts from an American perspective, like hip hop, R&B, oh, yeah. those things as well. Oh, and yeah. how did your family feel about that? Oh yeah, no question. And I mean, like for me, and I always got, you know, I always got, if, if we're having a really like honest conversation, you know, I think in in West African, I, I would say Ameri- the American condition and the structure is set up to separate us. Let me just, let me start with that. Cause when there's dissent within the family, you know, nobody wins when the family feuds, right? That's a Jay-Z line. Um, I look at the same way amongst our, our communities. And I think, you know, traditionally, you know, some people in my family have had words to say about me. Oh, he's too American. Like we give him too much free reign to do X, Y, and Z. And for me, it, I've always been like, yo, this is me. Like this is, this isn't, we're not in Ghana right now. Like, like, like we're in Brooklyn. Like this is me. This is who I am. I don't, it's not like I denounce who we are at home. But I also am a blend of this people as well. So I'm listening to hip hop. I'm rapping in the house. I mean, I, I, I'll never forget it. The first tape that I bought um, when I was a kid, I had like a couple of dollars and went to the store, got the single tape. It was LL Cool J's Lounging. Mm. And, and it was like, you know, they had the song on the first side and then they had the instrumental on the back side. I played this tape out in my house like out and like thankfully my grandmother was saying vincent but she was like she grew up in the bronx so it was like she was she knew what it was you know what i'm saying like it wasn't weird for her that i was doing any of these things and so she was really my saving grace like yo let that man be who he's who he is let the boy be who he is and give him some leeway because traditional african culture is very stern and structured and strict so you know you you try to find your ways to to be who you are without offending them but, you know, I, I very much so had to have very many conversations about them or with them, educating them that like, yo, like when we're out in the street, they don't care that you're Ghanaian or he's from Haiti or she's from Jamaica or this person's from, uh, you know, Turks and Caicos. Then no one cares about that. We're all black in this matter. And I think that over time, they really did start to understand that we are truly one one people. And because you emigrated here doesn't mean that you're better or, or, or worse or what have you. Um, and the whole idea of being here 
is to make sure that our legacy as a family is better. Otherwise, what would be the point? And, you know, that's a great segue because you really touched on what I was going to say in that Mm -hmm. there's this belief or a notion that our brothers and sisters who come from the diaspora do have an air of superiority, right? Or or feel that way um, in comparison to Black Americans. Yeah. But you are right in that when we step out of the door, we are just Black. So when did you have, how old were you when you had that first realization of racism and or structural inequality and what that that meant in New York? Yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, I had the NYPD. So mm. take, take, take with that <laughs> what you what you may, you know, I mean, do, arguably one of the most corrupt police institutions out there. I mean, maybe second to like Chicago or maybe other other inner cities. But, um, you know, I, I've seen I've been accused of stealing in, in, in corner stores that weren't my own. Like, you know, like if, if you grow up in a, in a certain part of the city, like your corner store, your Chinese food spot, your Jamaican spot, you grew up with them. Like, they know you. They know your parents and your grandparents. They know everybody, right? Even to this day, I go to East Flatbush Chinese food place. They remember me. If you go to another block or another neighborhood that don't necessarily know you, you know, it's testy waters. Like, you really don't know what's going to happen. So, um, you know, I've been accused of <laughs> of stealing and all this other stuff. Never done it. Never had to do it. Um, you know, the cops will come and question me and all this other stuff. And ultimately had to let me go. I'm a minor. Like, I don't really know what all the fuss was about. But, you know, I've seen stuff, you know, even in my adult life. I was in New York during Stop and Frisk. I've been stopped and frisked um, with a suit on. With, you know, so it's like, not only do I did I have that understanding earlier, I'm like, oh, this because I'm Black. That's the only reason why you're bothering me. I'm a good kid. I get great grades. I don't understand why I'm talking to you right now. Without my parents present. Let's let's mm-hmm. start there, by the way. Um, or guardian. Um, but, you know, it, it, not only is is that is it the first reminder, but it happens consistently. Right. You have these consistent reminders of, you know, I, I'm you know, I manage a team at Twitter. I am probably doing the best of of many of my con- contemporaries. And still I have these rem- reminders of the fact that I am a black man in America. And it's almost like some of it's disheartening, but some of it is also humbling at the same time. But it's like. You can't let them keep you in, in whatever box that is because you are still, you know, I'm I'm still outperforming what my parents even dreamed of me to have being in this country. And so for me, um, the reminders do happen, but they don't make me as sad as they they might have, you know, in in prior moments or instances. Um, because it's it's a heavy weight, heavy burden to to carry, as I'm sure you know all too for well. For sure. Yeah. Oh, oh yes, I have my you own already know yeah. stories as well, and I think sometimes. We we do focus on the experience of the black male, mm-hmm. um, which I would never minimize. Right, I've got a yeah. black brother, and listening to him, our experiences are not diff are not the same. Yeah. However, there are similarities for sure. Right, that I have experienced even as a black girl and then a black woman um, in that way as well. But but thinking back to those times when you were younger, mm-hmm. were you coming home and telling your family what you were experiencing out in the world? I did. Um, and you know, and, and, and this, and, you know, to an African family, it's like, okay, well, what did you do wrong? Cause that person mm-hmm. is not, it's not black and white at that point. Right. It's, it's elder and child. Right. You see what I'm saying? So that dynamic is at play, not necessarily, you know, the race thing that that's, that's secondary, even tertiary, depending on, on, on who you're talking to. Um, so I would share it and they kind of be like, all right, well, then maybe just don't go there anymore. And it wasn't, there wasn't that real discussion. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I had these discussions with my friends who had those discussions with their parents. Mm. 
and they would disseminate that information. And my grandma here and there, she would have that conversation like, hey, you know, you do whatever they say, like no sudden moment mo- movements, keep your hands where they can see them, all that kind of stuff. Cause she's just been around long enough to know that. But you know, when you're a kid, you're like, Oh, it's not going to happen to me. Like I'm going to be fine. Then, then those reminders start to happen. Then you start to see more and more of it. And you're like, Oh, this is what they were talking about. Right. So shifting gears a bit to your academic experience, you mentioned yeah. that you were a kid who got great grades, right? Was, were, were you, and you were, you said you were in her self-proclaimed, So were you a kid who was driven Mm -hmm. to excel academically or was that really driven by the pressure from your family to do well? It was a combination of both. Mm. It was a combination of both for me because, um, you know, my mom passed away when I was 12 years old Mm. um, and we were, that was like my best friend. So for me, you know, I got, and and, (laughs) this is a funny story. Um, You know, in middle school, I had a very tough time after she passed, obviously, you know, a a very big pillar of who I am and, and my upbringing, I just lost. And so, I remember doing terribly my like seventh grade year and, and then really coming to, you know, my stepdad at the time, you know, he really was instrumental in helping me there because, you know, he made me realize like, Hey, like your mom really did scratch and and struggle for you to be where you are. Like, don't let it go to waste, you know? And that's Mm -hmm. something that's always stuck with me, even to this day. It's like, what is the legacy? uh, What is her legacy going to look like? And how much of a role do I play in it? Um, and for me, that's been the driving force for a lot of the things that I've been able to accomplish and do on days where I didn't want to get out of bed. You know, this is all, this is all before self-care and all of the, you know, all of that stuff before I was, I was privy to any of, any of that, you know, that, that was what really just kept me going and, and, and made me, um, very firm in who I am and what I wanted in this world and, and really did go after it. And so, yeah, that, you know, that was it's a tough thing because I, I know we're mm-hmm. going to get to this point. It's a tough thing. But, you know, a, a very close person to me told me once that that had to happen for me to be who I was destined to be. Mm-hmm. And I strongly do believe that 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 servant mentality that I have comes from comes from that. It, it comes from wanting to do for others. Um, and that is, you know, I don't know that I reached that if because I'm going to be real with you. I was going to be one of them mama's boys type dudes that's how close me and my moms were like for real like like you bring a young lady home and you know it's it's a weird situation because it's like y'all are a little too close Mm -hmm. so so yeah so i it did have to happen for me to be who i was destined to be and you know what i i I find great power from it It, it's not it's not a wound as much as it used to be and and you know i even though you've said it's not as uh, a wound as much as it used to be we all know grief and pain or oh, yeah. loss is a tricky thing. Oh, yeah. Um, so I'll defer to you here in terms of how deep you want to go on this subject. Oh, yeah. But losing your mom at 12, was that sudden? Was it something that you had time to prepare for? What were the details surrounding that? Uh, ooh. So I would say that I don't know that you actually ever really have time to prepare for it. At 12, mm-hmm. it's like, mm, mm-hmm. I don't really understand how this works. But I will say my mom had been sick for, you know, quite a bit. You know, most of mm-hmm. most of most of my younger memory, you know, had been her, you know, suffering to try to understand what this disease was. And we never really did figure it out. Um, but, um, but yeah, most of, most of my childhood experience with my mother, there were good days and bad. Right. And when mm-hmm. it was bad, it was really bad. Um, and then it, it got bad and then it stayed bad. And then, and then that was it. So, you know, you never really got a chance to prepare. It still felt like a shock to, so the fa- I mean, my mom was really 39 when she passed. Mm-hmm. 
And I'm 34 right now. I'll be 35 in January. So like you think about your mortality because when you're right. a kid, you think your kids, you think your mom is way older than what she really is. Right. So now as I'm approaching that portion of my life, I'm like, damn, she was really like my age now for real trying to raise a kid. So, you know, I think, I think the perspective is stronger now because I look at it like, damn, she did a damn good job considering what she was going through. Right. And I think when parents have, when children have a parent that is ill or just unusual circumstances, it grows them up quicker, right? oh, yeah. more quickly than it would if you had a quote unquote normal childhood, whatever that is. What, but whatever do you think, right. Do you think that <laughs> informed your caretaker temperament and all of those things, having a mom who was dealing with illness long term? No question. That That's that's how I developed that for sure. Um, is because I, I, you know, many times I did have to take care of her. Many, you know, I'd have to go to the, to the, to the pharmacy that was around the corner. Thankfully, the pharmacy was owned by a Ghanaian family, and we were really close off Church Avenue, um, in, in Brooklyn. And um, uh, it was probably a, a short walk. You know, kids in New York grow up a little faster. We on the train, we walking around, we doing all this stuff. We got our independence a little earlier, um, so we don't really wild out when we go anywhere else. So, you know, I was going to the pharmacy, picking up her prescription. Thankfully, they were able to give us a little bit of a discount, a break on that. As you know, medication and, you know, doctor bills, all stuff could be uh, inundating. Um, so, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you you do what you can. You do what you can to help. And that's always mm-hmm. been my mentality. You know, if it's something, if I can't say that I love you and and not not support you and not, mm-hmm. you know, love is an action word. We say that and people say it and it probably goes in one ear and out the other. But you know, things like checking in on your people like that. That's something that's simple. And, you know, guys, it's tough. It's like pulling teeth. It's like, yeah, brother, how you doing? Yeah, you know, I'm good. It's cool. It's all right. You know what I'm saying? Nah, bro. Like, for real, like, how are you doing? Truly? Like, how's your mental? How's your heart? How's your spirit? Um, But yeah, very much so taking care of my mother is the reason why I, I am that way. Truly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you lose your mom at 12. You mentioned mm-hmm. a stepfather. Yeah. So that can be a different family dynamic. And, you know, the first thing we all do it, particularly in black communities, when when a parent passes and they have minor children, mm-hmm. who's who's going to take the kids? Right? Who's now going to yeah. raise this child? Um, was was that a conversation that you were privy to? Did you have uncertainty around who was going to take you in or was it just like, OK, my stepfather's here. This is who I'm going to be with. Yeah, at the time, it was like, okay, you can stay in Brooklyn and do that. You can go to Maryland um, and and stay. And he's my dad. I mean, I say stepdad because I do mm-hmm. have a father, and that relationship's a little rocky. But I don't want you to get con- confused. So, mm-hmm. um, yes, I mean, before my mother passed, he made a promise to my mom that he was going to take care of me. Mm-hmm. It's really just that simple. Um, and I wanted to be in a place where I would have the best shot at going to college because that was always the plan. Um, and, you know, moving with my stepdad was the best way to do that. And so moved to Maryland, did high school, um, did well, ended up at Morehouse, um, you know, and, and that that was probably the biggest turning point for me that I didn't know was going to be that <laughs> at all. Like I had no idea. But I, I will say that there's something to be said about a man that, you know, you know, by marriage, decides to take on a child. Right. Like, I mean, I say this to say that I wouldn't have faulted him if he was like, nah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, I get that. But the fact that he said yes and like truly like threw himself into it and was earnest about it and just 
just looked out. Like he's just a quality. Like now it's like, yeah, he's my dad, but like we're more he's more like my older brother. You know, that's not, that's our relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, because we had just been through so much. You know, at the time they had just bought a they had just bought a house, just bought a car. And this is two two income household. She passes away and it's all on him. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then you get a son. You know what I'm saying? So and he and he's never been a parent before and he never had a kid. So, you know, I, I want to definitely shout him out, give him the utmost respect and kudos because that's that's my guy. That's my guy for life. And I think that narrative is important because there are absent fathers in every uh, within mm-hmm. every race. Right. Mm-hmm. But there is this whole narrative and trope that, that is more pervasive in our communities, which is inaccurate. It is. And there are men who are stepping up for children that are not biologically theirs, but they love just the same. Yep. There are traditional family dynamics where, you know, children are conceived, no, the father is there, there are parents who effectively co-parent yep. as well. So I'm glad you you mentioned this because I think that's still a stereotype and I don't know why that we have to fight you, against. You bunk. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, I, I, I benefited largely from that. You know, my, my mm-hmm. dad was in my life then he wasn't, you know, then he came back later. You know, but in the toughest times of my life, I had somebody to be there for me. And, and I'm and I'm I'm grateful that it worked out that way for me. A lot of people aren't that lucky. You know, I'm, I'm grateful that 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 was that was a part of my story. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So you went from New York. Right. This like mm-hmm. bustling urban metropolis yes. to Silver Spring, Maryland. Silver Spring. Let's get it. Yeah. Which is like suburban. I mean, it's close enough to D.C. And there's yeah. some like city elements. But it ain't it's the suburbs, the boroughs, it's, right? It's, it's, the, nah, it's, the, it's the suburbs. <laughs> yeah, it's the suburbs. You gotta take a bus to the train. You know what I'm saying? You gotta, you have to drive a car. You know. Mm-hmm. So I did get my, I did get my license earlier than my, than my New York uh, brethren. <laughs> of course. You know. So, so what I'll was be, that adjustment like for you? Uh, so allergies. That's one. That's one word. Okay. Um, eyes swollen shut. Like you know, I had to get allergy medicine. So that was new for me. Um, what else? It was it was completely different. You know, my high school was, you know, I think it was, it was probably like 51% white and then like 49%, you know, Latinx, Black, Asian community. Um, so I wouldn't quite say balanced, but, you know, it, it, it gave it gave us different looks, you know, a bunch mm-hmm. of different people that were there. You know, D.C., that part of Maryland is very diverse, which is, you know, it's, it's good for what it's good for and, and it does have its issues. Um, it was really quiet. It was really quiet. Uh, but overall the people were nice. Like I enjoyed it. You know, I, I, I very much so look, if school wasn't a million dollars, I'd be in school right now. Like I love school. I, mm-hmm. I was that kid. I was the kid in the neighborhood that when the older kids would go to school on the first day of school, I would cry because I wanted to go to school. I was that kid. So like for me, you know, I was just happy to be in a place where it was, it was the first time for me where I was in class with white counterparts. That was not a thing mm-hmm. in Brooklyn. Oh, I went to a Catholic school in, in, in Brooklyn, St. Catherine and Genoa. And it was, the teachers were white, but the students were black. It's mm-hmm. probably like 98%. So that was very different. You know, you get to school, everyone's from a different, you know, <laughs> background. You're learning all these different things. But what it did reaffirm for me was like, I got into some of these schools and I was like light years ahead of some of these kids in terms of like their educational, like, you know, progress and reading and math and all of that stuff, which was, which was on some level, it was comforting. Cause you know, when you mm-hmm. go to a new place, you're like, okay, am I going to be okay to keep up? Like, is everything going to be cool? This is a big change, but it all worked out. And 
you know, it was tough again, not having my mom to be like, nah, you, you have to go do that. You have to go get this a, or you have to Mm -hmm. go to this, this thing, whatever it is. So I, I I learned how to do that for myself. Um, I, I grew up, I would say between when she passed at 12 and probably by the time I left for college is probably when I did exponential growth on just maturity and just understanding the world a whole lot, a whole lot better. So, but Maryland was good to me. I mean, even to this day, I mean, it's one of the places that I'll put on, on the list for, you know, to where to raise kids. Like it, it was definitely good to me. I got, I got very few bad reports to, to discuss as it pertains to Maryland. And then you're off to the AUC. And then I'm off to the house and the AUC. Shout out to Spellman, Clark Atlanta. Ah, I love Atlanta. <laughs> I can, everyone I talk to who has gone to college in Atlanta or spent time there in these interviews, they all give that same look where they that just goofy. think back with fondness. <laughs> it Remember never them fails. Dances. Remember them dances, boy. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, Atlanta gave me a family, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, they say you can't choose your family. I chose some family now. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it's, it's serendipitous that this is, this would have been homecoming week. Um, it tells you a lot that people come to Atlanta, even though they know we, we don't have any like real sanctioned events. It's the mm-hmm. fellowship that people are coming for. We don't need all the, we're not Howard homecoming, so we're not going to have the big acts, but we just need each other. A couple of alcoholic adult beverages and maybe some taboo, and we gonna make some shake. So, um, yeah, I mean, Morehouse gave me, you know, I stayed in Grace Hall freshman year. Um, you know, my my closest friends to this day are are from the AUC, and they're all doing mm. remarkable things. And it's like, you know, if I say today I want to start a podcast company, this this is really relevant. Some will someone will say in the chat, "Oh, you got to meet." They'll give you a list. Mm-hmm. And that that's the kind of fellowship that I appreciate. But more importantly, the city of Atlanta, to me, is what D.C. was in the 80s and 90s as Chocolate City. At this point in Atlanta, my dollar is going to exchange to three or four black families before it goes out of the circle. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not and it's not even like you have to try. Like in Brooklyn, I have to try. I have my list of black owned spots that I go to. Not in Atlanta. I can go I can go to establishments that are owned by my brothers and sisters, spend my money freely and feel great about it, knowing that this is going to their kids or it's going back into the business and it's going to our community. It makes me so happy to be able to say that Dennis is black. Accountant is black. Doctor is black. You know what I'm saying? Trainer is black. Like this is it's amazing. I love it. So I definitely want to get to you talking about having that experience and feeling so passionately about it against the backdrop of working in tech, which we know Mm -hmm. is notorious for having a lack of diversity. Talk about it. Uh, So I definitely want to get there. But before we do, like, what was your vision for your career going through Morehouse? So (laughs) started as a computer science major. Uh, Did that for about a year and a half and was like, maybe this might not be it. So about halfway through, I switched to business and then with a focus of uh, uh, marketing and finance. So I always knew I wanted to be in marketing. I was that kid that was very interested about why the advertisements said what they said and why they were on when they were on. Mm. Um, so that always piqued my interest. So I'm, I'm going to put that aside. Remember I told you I built computers and all this other stuff and then there's the software, blah, 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 real nerdy stuff. Um, that for me was a really, I, I knew I had to do something in tech. But often in our careers, we have to just get in, get some experience before we could pivot 
or bust a move somewhere else to, to something that we actually like. So mm-hmm. what ended up happening for me was the financial crisis happened. The Great Recession. The Great Recession. We all love that. Right as I'm graduating, you know, we hype. Obama just got elected 2008. I'm like, okay, bet. We finna go out here and change the world. Great. Financial crisis hits 2009. Everything goes to to the dumpster, basically. So, you know, I decided to go to Parsons for a year. Do a year fashion marketing program. I was really into clothes. My mom was a seamstress. I left that part out. So, um, you know, uh, fabric science and all that stuff, that excites me. Like, I know this stuff. I know what Tool does. I know what Rayon does. I know what all these other uh, fabrics do and how they were um, created. Um, so let's try to put that together. It was great. I met a lot of wonderful people, a lot of, a lot of really smart, very creative people. Definitely helped me with my creative uh, muscle and process. But in the end, parts of the New York City. And I don't have a rich parent to hold me down for New York City. Like we we was talking about we had five dollars to stretch for the day. You know what I'm saying? So and um, yeah, those were not so fun times. But I did learn a lot. And I will say that it did push me to pivot into what I really wanted. So as the market started to rebound, I had a Morehouse brother. There, there we go again. You'll hear it again. Um, who was working at Turner Broadcasting at the time. He was like. His name is Evan Wadi Farr. Really good brother. He goes, Stu, I know you used to be in sales. I know you, you know, in all the in all the time that we're talking about transition, I have had jobs. I worked at Sears for like a million years. Like they're not even a store anymore. Um, Sears was that deal though back in the it, day. It, it, it was him. It was you him. Could, you could get your Easter outfit, a new Man. washer and dryer, some tools, like all in the same yes. place. <laughs> yes. Now you see why I love this place. So I worked at Sears. I mean, even up until my freshman year of college, I was working at the one in Cumberland here in Georgia. And um, so Evan was like, yo, I'm working at Turner now because um, he was working at Cartoon Network. And he was like, they have a job at Turner Entertainment. I think you'd be great at it. I apply. I get the job. I work at Turner for two years. I get promoted within my first year. I'm at Turner for two years, but it's such a good old boys club. It is just like, ugh, like, like a vineyard vines ad. It's just like, ooh, I don't belong here. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So I'm, I'm just like, okay. What I ended up doing was, I was like, I don't even watch TV on time anymore. Mm. And in college, I remember this small company called Hulu that we ain't have cable. So this is how I watch TV. Applied to Hulu. I ended up getting a job. So I worked at Hulu for two years as a um, as a sales planner, putting plans together for advertisers to be able to um, buy ad space within our ad breaks of our shows. So I do that for two years. And one day I'm just like poking around like, what's the next move? I'm always mindful of what the next move is. And I come across Twitter. Now, I joined Twitter in 2009 as I graduated from high school. My good friend, Alexander Sampson, put me on, another Morehouse brother, and I loved it. Fell in love instantly. So I'm at Hulu. I'm like, what's next? I'm looking at jobs. I see this job. Account manager, tech and telco. Hmm. All the techie stuff that I've already been telling you about. One thing I forgot to mention was during my time at Morehouse, I worked at at AT&T. I was selling phone service. In fact, Kaya was my biggest client. My neck mm-hmm. and my back. Yes, that that was my biggest client. She lived in South Atlanta. So I was like, this is perfect. <laughs> I don't know why that's just funny. It's hilarious because it's the it most is. random thing ever. That's why it's funny. Um, so, so yeah, so I applied for the job. I don't know anyone, right? And as you know, tech is really insular. Someone kind of has to bring you in or shepherd you in. Um, I get the job. 
you know, I, I still joke to this day. They saw Stuart Cornelius expecting not a black guy to walk in. Right. And I walked in and, and knocked it out of the park. So thank you, mom, for for, for this vision. Um, so I get the job. Seven years later, I'm still there. So let's let's back up to Hulu. Yeah. And I back up because like I feel like if you're saying you were watching Hulu in college, like you mm-hmm. were ahead of the curve, right? And I can recall in 2012, right? It was like, yeah, 2012, going to an entertainment and media law conference. I was really, you know, a couple of years into my legal career and yep. kind of building my practice. And I remember this panel talking about new media. And it was someone talking about Hulu and the streaming phenomenon and what was to come, right? Yep. And like, we had all kind of heard of it. You know, we knew Netflix and like mailing the DVDs back and forth. I was just about to say that. And P- this dude was like passionate and informed. And I remember 90% of the room just kind of being like, yeah, yeah, okay. Like, cool. Like this little company, Hulu, that's, that's yeah. great. That's interesting. We did not know what was to come, right? I remember coming back and talking to people about it in New York, which was like bubbling a Silicon Alley at the time and being excited about it. Like this, this is, this could be something and people kind of being dismissive, right? Like, a funny story for you about that. Yeah. Yeah. So did you, when you were at Hulu, did you know that streaming was going to be what it became? Absolutely. That's okay. why I went to work there because there is no way I would get the job at Twitter if I didn't understand digital video. Mm. That's what Hulu gave me. And I'll take it a step further. When I was at Turner, this is the funny thing. When I was at Turner, as I was leaving TVS, TNT, True TV, Cartoon Network, Adult Swim, they had this concept called, and you're going to be like, I know this, TV Everywhere. Mm, yes. And that was, the, that, was the, that was the spark note for what streaming would eventually become. How do we access video anywhere, right? Because we're not always going to be in front of our television set. And, and most of us don't even care. Some people don't even own TVs to start there. But Hulu was just moving so much faster and ended up being a testing ground for uh, NBC, ABC and Fox. It was a joint venture. Mm. And that's how Hulu was born. Wow. But you left. You left after left. a couple of years. I left because I left because I, I didn't see the pathway to the next role. Mm. And it wasn't going I wasn't going to achieve that in the timeline that I had for myself. Um, but also. I don't know that I really knew that I would get the Twitter job until they call. I always say this, get me in a room. You get me in a room, I'm definitely getting this job. But at the time that I was applying, I had no idea. Mm -hmm. Um, So it wasn't necessarily my plan, but Twitter moved so quickly. I got my offer like on a Monday. It was like the 4th of July weekend or something like that. By Tuesday, I had to tell them yay or nay. So how old was Twitter at this point? How big were they? Um, Twitter was probably about 2,000 employees, 2,500 employees. It's 2014 um, at the time. So, you know, they're still, they're still in, you know, still a young company. I think Twitter's 15 now at this point, 15, 16. Which is crazy that the time has has flown like this, right? Yeah. So you go in with the confidence and all the charisma and the perfect combination of experience. Mm -hmm. But getting through an interview process and then having the confidence to know you're going to knock a new job out of the park are two different things. Yeah. So s- accepting the role and going in, did you feel like I got this or were you like, I got to find my sea legs with this new thing? Um, I went in with that confidence. Mm-hmm. By the first week, it was like, oh, cal- calm down, young man. You know what I'm saying? It was like, pump your brakes. Hold on. 
Um, so yes, solid combination of experience and expertise because I did use the platform. I was a user, so I understood the consumer facing um, benefits and value proposition, all of that stuff. That made sense to me. The one thing that they that's not on the surface is that Twitter can be so many different things to so many different people. Mm-hmm. And at the time, they were they had just went public. So there is a lot of stuff that you try to figure out as a company when you have shareholders to report to. Right. Um, and so coming in, it was just like overwhelming. And you get you have imposter syndrome. I'm like, whoa, like, did I jump the gun? Like, am I supposed to be here for real? And I would say probably after six to eight months. Yeah, after six to eight months, it was like, okay, I got it. I know exactly what I'm doing. And if I don't know the answer, I know exactly who to ask to get the answer. And that's how it started to build. But my expertise where I shined was when I joined, maybe about three months later, Twitter was introducing video. Because at the time, mm-hmm. they had TwitVid. It was like three, it was like third party. It had Tweet Photo and TwitPic. And yes. you remember all of these things. These yes. were not native to the platform, though. So, you know, other people made a lot of money based off that because they put ads on that on those sites. Um, and then Twitter decided to actually figure that out. So once they have photos already and then video was the newest thing, which I which I knew well. So that's what that's and how that worked out. I'm glad you brought up coming in, having the confidence and needing that six to eight months. Right. Because I think that's an important anecdote, because when you go to a company that's been around for 40 or 100 years, uh, innovation is slow, right? Truly. To, to happen for, for the most part. So you go in and more often than not, you are backfilling a role that a bunch of people have done before you. There's a roadmap. Here's how you do the job, right? If you can follow the blueprint and build upon that and make improvements based on the foundation, you're good. Your rating is going to be good. It's going to be great. Yeah. There is a longer runway when you choose to work at a disruptive company. Yes. That's making strides and blazing trails. And particularly for us as Black employees who have often a constant pressure to come in and be able to deliver you better right speak away. About this. Yes. Because we, we have something to prove. You come in and you realize, Ugh, I have all the experience in the world, but what is going... I don't even speak the same language as these people, right? Yes. And so you start to feel like, did I make a mistake? Did they make a mistake? Yes. Am I an outsider looking in? Do I have the chops? for this job, not realizing that they're continuing to iterate while you're trying to learn what's happening today. They're iterating for tomorrow. So it's moving like, you're, you're, yeah, doubly tasked. The goalpost is moving while you're trying to get comfortable in this new job. And I just wanted to bring that up because I feel like this conversation happens in silos a lot with employees of, of the hip, you know, innovative companies, but not realizing the real struggle of really keeping up and finding your rhythm in a way that's completely different and requires a completely different skill set, and it's a heavier lift. If and, and if you if you're not at then if you're at like a a large company that's been around forever, right? Like, like a Turner, like a Turner, right? exactly. Yeah. Which is why I say that conduit, like Hulu, was a conduit to that because it was still a, mm-hmm. a it, was, it was a baby. We didn't have original programming. Like I was there when it wasn't so sweet. There was no Handmaid's Tale. We didn't have that. Um, but to your point, and this is something I tell all new hires whether they work on my team or not, give yourself grace. None of this stuff is easy. None of it is intuitive. And even though we're an older, more grown-up company, we still don't have our stuff all the way together. So like, give yourself grace. You are in the right place at the right time. It's just a lot of information. And if you don't know something, just ask. Everyone Everyone has 
had their first day and been exactly. like, whoa, this is a lot. Give yourself time. And the running joke for me is like the minute I sort of untangle something as a lawyer, I'm like, who deep breath. I know two mm-hmm. hours, a new idea is coming yep. or a new issue that's, that's yep. been discovered. So it's a never ending cycle, right? Truly. And you really have to take it day by day, project by project, issue by issue, idea by idea, roadmap by roadmap. Yep. Product by product. Be, <laughs> be changing too. Yes. Yes. Uh, for sure. So how did your role at Twitter evolved because you've been there for so long now, seven years. How has it evolved in that time? Dang, you just gonna you just gonna overtly call me old. Okay. Um yeah. So I uh, <laughs> listen, but in, in startup or young company years, that's you like, and I both know like how this goes. Yes, people they go here, they two two years and get pick up some experience, pick up and some options or equity, yeah. then they mm-hmm. go somewhere else. They spread it around. Mm-hmm. So you are like in in startup world. Tech world, you old head, bro. I'm an old head. I am. A, I'm a, yeah, no, you're right. You're right. You that, that was a very not an age, not, not an age, age an experience. In, yes, an experience. <laughs> that was a very eloquent way of putting that. I appreciate that. It was very kind. Um, yeah, I mean, when I got into Twitter, I was an account manager. I was covering a bunch of tech accounts at the time, like BlackBerry. Don't see that much anymore, but mm-hmm. um, Samsung, LG, Microsoft. Uh, Google, Verizon, all of those kinds of accounts. And, um, you know, kind of worked my way through and became a senior account manager, then became a client partner or account executive for those who are in media and understand those terms. Um, uh, so I had my own book of business. So I was, I was flying across the country and talking to folks and presenting and taking them out the drinks and taking them out the ball games and all of that. And, and all of that was cool. Um, you know, what ended up getting monotonous was the number. There was always a number. There's always a, you know, a goal. And you have, you know, you, you have 90 days to hit this goal. And if you hit it, great. You know, you get a nice little check. Seven weeks after the quarter ends. Yes, I know the exact weeks because I was looking for them checks. Um, and, you know, it, 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 you're only as good in that organization. You're only as good as what you can generate. And I hated that that was my only unit of measure. You know, um, so what I ended up doing was taking on other projects. I led Blackbirds for almost four years. Um, and this is in a time where, you know, we're pushing for more diverse hires. We're pushing for more black people to work at Twitter. We're asking Jack to be our executive sponsor. We're making audacious acts, asks things that, you know, ERG groups, BRG groups would only dream about, you know, in that time, I was able to gain a lot of visibility within the company. Um, you know, we're putting on all these different things. We we had Chadwick Bozeman come, the late great Chadwick Bozeman come to Twitter and surprise some students and we took people to the Black Panther premiere and all of these different things. And so that started to once that started to get great, I started to get really good at my other job because I was being really fulfilled and challenged in the way that I needed to be, but also giving back to my community in a way that was meaningful. Um, and that's all I ever really want to do. But I also have really expensive tastes. So like, I can't do that at the expense of getting paid. I'm just going to keep it a buck. But went from there and joined the agency team. I'm not, I'm not a person that's afraid of change. I've never been that way. You know, I moved around at big changes at a young age. I moved to the agency development team. So I'm running all of the Twitter relationship with publicists in the United States. Um, so I do that for a year and get, gain a ton of relationships and perspective on how the entire ad world works. That was a great, not my favorite thing, but I learned a lot and it really did challenge me. Um, and then, you know, there was a role on the partners team 
and I applied for it. I, I interviewed for it and I got it. And so now I manage a team that's focused on high profile individuals and celebrities on the platform, um, guarding their health and safety, um, creating content with them, and then also ultimately driving product adoption for, for the platform as well. So it's been wonderful. Um, it's great to work with the with the entertainment industry. You know, we're working with Netflix, Strong Black Leads, and HBO and Scenes in Black, and being able to get some great content, get some wonderful stories out there. And um, and it's I, look, I've I've been very fortunate again. Like things could have gone left so many times. I'm so happy I am where I am right now talking to you. I, I will tell you that. But Twitter as a company, I've had a great time working there. Mm-hmm. The culture is fantastic. The culture can't not be fantastic for me to be there for seven years. Like, you know, at this point, I would have burnt out if if that was the case. And we would have been, you know, we would have been somewhere else. And it's not like they pay everyone a lot. Like they're not paying what Facebook and Amazon is paying, but the culture is what keep people there. That's Mm -hmm. just, that's just what it is. Because when I get out of bed every morning, I log, I take the 10 walks, 10 steps from my bathroom to come and sit down at the desk, you know, I truly do feel, you know, fulfilled and, and, and happy that I, I get to work at this wonderful place. And, you know, you are the second um, Twitter employee to, to be on the show. Dang, I'm not the first. Oh, no. my boo. She's yes. a wonderful. Okay, I'll, be, I'll be second to her. She's wonderful. Yes. And what I have found just from talking to the two of you is a level of authenticity. Like you have fully embraced who you are and you're able to have that on full display which not a lot of people have, even within the the wonderful world of tech and startups, right? It's different in that you wear what you want, mm-hmm. you can wear your hair however you want, but mm-hmm. still people still still may feel like they have to suppress who they are, um, especially as black folks. And now you're the second person that I met where I'm just not getting that vibe from Twitter. Do you think that Twitter promotes that culture or that's just inherently who you are? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. Mm-hmm. Um, funny story, I referred Javon to Twitter. Mm-hmm. So I, I strongly believe, I'm going to say this, I'm going to get to your question. Um, I strongly believe that, you know, tech in that industry is one of our pillars to to bridging the wealth gap, mm-hmm. full, full stop. Um, and so whatever experience, resources, and things that we get from working for these tech companies, the ultimate goal is to go and build our own with people that have been experts at other larger companies, Absolutely. like the Twitter, Facebook, Amazon, all of those. So I do want to make sure that I, I get that point out. Now, I will say that there comes a point in your life, most people, most Black people, hopefully, where you're like, I'm just going to be me and they just going to have to take it. Mm-hmm. Period. You know what I'm saying? And, and honestly, in my mind, I'm like, you're doing them, you're doing yourself, the company and the consumers at large, customers at large, a disservice if you're not who you are. Mm-hmm. At work, they didn't hire you to be like Emily for Darien, Connecticut. They hired you to be Stuart from East Flatbush, Brooklyn, with Ghanaian parents in a Ghanaian household and speak two dialects. They didn't hire you to be anything else. They don't want you to blend in. Tell them where they're wrong. Give them the feedback. Um, that's Jack, that's Jack's favorite thing. He loves feedback. Tell me where we're messing up. I, I don't want to hear about the rosy stuff. That's cool. We'll, we continue to do that. But give me the stuff that we we suck at. Let us know. Um, and that allows you to really just be who you are. And um, there's a book, it's called Black Magic. Um, It's by Chad Sanders. Um, We actually went to high school together in Silver Spring, Maryland, and he ended up at Morehouse. But he talks about this internal struggle that he has while he is working or when he worked at Google 
Mm. Um, it's a wonderful book because anyone that's worked in tech, if you've been in legal, if you've been in finance, if you've been anywhere, a lot of those sentiments, you will you will really feel that like in the book and it'll make you feel better about leaning into who you are because that's when the real work, that's when the, the beautiful work comes out when you're not worried about, oh, I went to Allman Brothers. You didn't go to Allman Brothers the other day. You don't even listen to that music. You don't have to blend in with them. You know what I'm saying? We can talk about Kendrick and shoot. That's not a problem. You can be who you are. And I think that there, to your point, there are people that go into large organizations and and shrink a little bit. And it's because they're trying to be something that they're not. And if they release that, relinquish that, whatever that pressure is, and lean into who they are, I guarantee you their work starts to blossom. For sure. Now, going back to your work, and I'm taking, I'm putting this question out there. I'm taking a complete shot in the dark because I don't know if you're going to be able to answer it. Uh Um, But when you work in partnerships and you work with high profile individuals, all of us have watched somebody who is famous devolve on Twitter, Mm -hmm. right? Like where they make a statement that's controversial and people start to drag them. That's the word that we use. So you're just going to call Nikki out? That's what you're going to do right now? (laughs) You said it. You said it. I did not. Okay. You said it. Right. But that is exactly what I'm talking about. I knew exactly where you're going. And so they continue to spin this web and talk and talk and talk and talk. Mm -hmm. When that happens, Mm -hmm. what vantage point do you have? Working in in partnerships, because, you know, (laughs) there's always this conversation happening online. Like somebody just please shut their Twitter account off, pull Mm -hmm. the coattail, whatever. When you are in, um, and we're not talking about specifically Nikki, obviously now, but when you're in partnership right. with these high profile individuals and something like this has happened, yeah, are you hands off? Are you involved in some way? Do we you are, have an opinion one way or another on what's going on? And say what you can, obviously. I, I we will. all know, yeah. We all know how this goes when we're employees of these organizations. So let me first say I love my job. Jack is very good to me. And mm-hmm. I'm ho- and I'm hoping to get invited to the next Carter's birthday party because Jack is not part of that family. <laughs> I will say that it, for me, it's, it's, it's a bit of a heartache because these are people that truly do love using the platform. Mm-hmm. There are things that we just can't, they're not so much privy to our day-to-day policy. Yes. So it is our job and we do a really good job of this. Literally, it is my job to know when someone like a Nikki is starting to go off the rails a little bit. Mm-hmm. And so we give guidance to them. Like, hey, you know, this is against our policy. You know, I want to make sure that you know that this is happening. If we do action, it's because of X, Y, and Z portion of this policy. Mm. Full stop. But, um, you know, sometimes you, you can only do but so much. Like, we love that you're, tw- you're, you're tweeting, but we don't love the misinformation. And Twitter has taken a very aggressive stance on that because of the harm that we've seen, you know, happen amongst the community, our community and the world. And so for us, you know, we hate when that type of stuff does happen, but we try to go out of our way to like throw the lifesaver in the water. Like, hey, like don't drown behind this. This is not the hill to die on, but there's only so much that we can do. And, and if you go too far, it, it just kind of is what it is. So, but yeah, we, we, we try to do a really good job of letting them know the do's and don'ts and the rules of the road. But mm-hmm. um, sometimes people are emotional and they want to get it out there and they feel a certain way. And, and for, and to Nikki's credit, I think it started, it started a dialogue. I mean, how ridiculous is some of the stuff she said? I'll, I'll let everybody else figure out what that is, but it really does show that there is so much inaccurate information around this one topic that is a life or death topic. Mm-hmm. So think about all the stuff that are even less, that's less important. 
you know, like what what's really the truth out there. So um, it's important for us to do what we can as it pertains to that. You know, we we created the platform. So on some levels, we are the stewards, no pun intended, of what happens on our platform. Mm -hmm. And at various points in this conversation, you have provided examples of how tech can be insular. Yep. And that somebody brought you on to a role, you referred Siobhan, like, mm -hmm. you know, and how that just sort of happens. Mm -hmm. um, so thinking about that in terms of like those of us who have a, a robust Rolodex because we have lived in New York, or we've worked mm -hmm. in New York or we have friends from school and we've got, you know, our, our homies who are in all these different places who can open doors for us. What about the person that is in like Evanston, right? Or some far flung place and may not have the the Rolodex that we do that, that says like, I want to break in. Like, how do I get into this world? I know that if I just sent, submit a resume, it's going to get lost in the sea of 10,000 and I probably won't even get an informational, right? A screen yeah. call. What do yeah. you say to that person, that black person, particularly who wants to try to break into this world? The one thing about black people, we are hustlers. We going to find a way. Okay. Mm -hmm. Always, 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 always. We are always creative. We will always take what other person may call trash and make it into a treasure. And then that person may want it back. That, that's, mm -hmm. that happens over and over again. The one thing I've seen, there's two things, two bits of advice I would give. One, get comfortable with teaching yourself things. Mm -hmm. Get certifications, knock all of that, knock all of the prerequisite stuff out. Right. Um, use YouTube University, get smarter, make sure that, you know, you're at least very proficient in what you're doing. And also, and this happens to me all the time, someone will DM me out of the blue, either on Twitter or on LinkedIn. People love to talk about themselves. True. They will definitely sit down and you'd like, hey, I just want to hear about your career. I just want to know a little bit more about you. Um, I'm trying to break into this because everybody remembers. Every black person in tech right now remembers the struggle um, of trying to get into tech. And so they will empathize with that enough that they will give you at 15 minutes of their time to talk about something, or they'll give you their email and say, Hey, if you're looking at something, let me know. I might know somebody there. They will do that. It's up to the person that truly wants to do it to just go out there and just reach out. There's nothing wrong with a cold DM, nothing wrong with a cold LinkedIn message. I've answered several of them. And in the end, you do feel, I mean, the person receiving, it feels good that they helped somebody that was once where they were. Um, but but it really does take that first step um, and, and that bit of courage. I know it's not easy and that's probably not the greatest answer of all time, but um, it does work. And, and that's when you say it's not the greatest answer, but it really is not rocket science. It, it just, it just takes patience and persistence. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes, you know, people want to like, they get the one contact and they're super hyped. Like I met this person, he works at X, Y, and Z, like this is my chance. Mm -hmm. And that may be like a coffee clutch or a virtual 15 minute, you gather some information and it goes nowhere. Like it's nothing else yeah. besides here's the information. But if you're building on that and you're building up your skills at some point, the gate is going to open. Yes. It absolutely then, is. The last questions that the last questions you ask on a call like that, this is how this is like you remember you're an interviewer. You ask open ended questions at the mm -hmm. end of this. The question should be, who's another person that you think I should talk to? Exactly. And can you make can you make an intro? It's really not hard. You, you I mean, you could develop your script, literally write it down sentence for sentence and make it work. I promise you can. And it's you know, easier now. We got technology. Yes. And, you know, the beauty of like 
this age, I'm, I'm a little bit older than you, but yeah. being at this age now, like we're building out teams. Yes. So with that being said, we're putting out the bird call. Like, who do you know? Cause I've yeah. got this job right coming up or somebody's reaching out to you saying, you know, anybody in this space who's looking to make a move. Like I have those conversations every single week. Yeah. And the people who are top of mind, the ones who kind of keep in touch and, That's you know, it. have just reached Important. out and said, What's what up? do you know? Right. If nothing's, if nothing is available today, I get it, but I just like to maintain this relationship. I'll see what you're That's doing, it. whatever. Um, and, and so I think, we're at a place now as a community where we have our own collective and our own network mm-hmm. happening as well. Is it the same as like the folks that might be in the Hamptons and at the local country club, right? Maybe yeah. not there yet. Um, not. No. <laughs> yeah, right. Like, and obviously I say maybe with sarcasm. Right. Um, but there is, there is a collective happening. Yeah. And, and there is and, a network that's slowly being built for sure. Yeah. And we just have to tap into it. And, and, you know, I mean, look, the net, the networking thing, I know people hate that word. There are some people that are introverts that are like, if I hear networking one more time, I'm going to lose it. But I promise that is a thing. It is a thing. And you have to find your tribe of people that, you know, can back you up or, you know, disseminate information and all of those things. Because there's going to come a time where you need you're going to need something or you're going to have an idea or they're going to need something. And I think that that's that's the, that's our greatest strength is as a community. The one thing that we need to be careful of is to, is to is to stay away from gatekeeper mentality. Like we can't we each one teach one. You know, what I'm saying you got to you got to pull as you climb. And that's the only way as a community that we really move forward because especially in tech, because there's so much opportunity. I mean, the word equity that by itself it's life changing. Absolutely. Be, beyond your paycheck, the equity that I mean, the concept is like when I got to Twitter and they were talking about equity, I was like, huh? I had to go take a whole class. I was like, oh, 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 okay. Oh, bet. Like this is oh, this is what we on. Okay, wonderful. We've never seen that in any other real form like that. And these companies make a lot of money off of the work that you do. It makes sense that you get equity for it. So how do we get more people that look like us to get more equity and and ultimately increase their their net worth? We can't be gatekeepers. We have to hold everybody down. Absolutely. And I think for me, what I love when it gets really hard, right? Because Mm -hmm. it does. It's not easy. People like see the free food and like the swag and the great events. They don't don't see the journey. (laughs) But they do not like you paying for all that. It's free you're paying for it, right? Oh, yeah. Um, But for me, it's knowing that me and so many people that I know, we're in a situation where we can change our family lineage in True. one generation when we're talking about creating wealth and to create those opportunities for others. And everybody comes in and has the same like reaction that you do, that you did. I had the same one, like, what does this all mean? And like, you know, can I bank on it? Can I not? Hey, you know, all of those university. things. <laughs> yes, yes I've been exactly. Learning. <laughs> right, for sure. So to be able to create that generational wealth and really steer the ship for your family and your, your generational line is not even here yet. Mm -hmm. It's an amazing feeling. And to go back to your earlier point about Parsons and like not having a rich uncle to think that the children we haven't even had yet or the nephew or whomever, or the mentee that we haven't even maybe found yet might be in a better position to pursue opportunities and maximize potentials and hone talents because of what we're doing right now. That is a driver. That's a driver for me, for sure. And the church shall say amen. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You nailed it. That's exactly right. That's what we're here for. That's what mm-hmm. the whole point. That's what that's what all of this progression, this this is the fever pitch. We're at the top. We we're the most educated. 
this, there's no other way to go but up. Right. But it's not a guarantee. And we have to make sure we're holding each other accountable and making sure we're looking out for our people. That's it. I'm here for everybody black. It's really that simple. Like that mm-hmm. line encapsulated so much. She was being funny, but it's true. Right. For sure. So before we let you get out of here, describe a time when you had to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Oof. I mean, extraordinary on an ordinary day. I think I've had, we've had so many days like this, unusually back to back, because we've all been in a pandemic. And so I'm just going to say that every day of the last 18 months (laughs) has been like, I mean, because, you know, when you're, when you, when you're a giver, you, you really have to be mindful of your battery. Mm-hmm. And when you're a people manager, you really have to be mindful of your battery. And so, you know, I'm an empath in that way. When someone on my team is suffering and having a tough time, like I truly do feel it in my heart. Um, and I think that, you know, you carry that weight of not seeing family. I think we're on the better side of the pandemic. I would say I would say er, the early days, though. Ooh, I mean, I've been through a breakup. You know, I was getting promoted. I was overwhelmed at work. You know, my mental health was a little bit off, even though I was going to therapy. It just wasn't it wasn't riding the way it needed to ride. And so, you know, you you spend those days, you know, kind of just like with your with your eyes glazed over trying to figure out, you know, what's what. And that's, you know, I would say that, you know, those days going to work were difficult. You know, Mm -hmm. we're going into work. We're at a desk. We're in our apartment. I'm in New York City. I got ambulances going crazy. There was a time where it was fireworks every every second of the day. You know what I'm saying? Like, it was just overwhelming. And I still had to show up. And I still had to be there for the people because there were people that were going through worse things. And, you know, just a smiling face or a check-in and, hey, how you doing? You know, that that went a really, really long way. And so we, you know, we, we do the best that we can and we try to show up for our people where we can. And, um, you know, I've had days that have been really difficult. Um, and the biggest theme that has come out of all of this has been self-care mm-hmm. and and making sure that we're taking that time to, I mean, now we can, you know, book that massage, book that facial, book that haircut, book that trip, that what, whatever it looks like for you, you know, making that happen. I think that it was the tough days that reinforced, that reinforced the need for that. Absolutely. I, I have... I continue to say like who I was before this pandemic is not who I am today. Yes. And I'm probably never going to go back to that. Like the, nope. the need for balance, the need for self-care, the need for slowing it down, the need for mental and emotional check-ins with myself, with the people that I care about, with my therapist, like all of those things is now heightened in a way where it's become a lifestyle. Yeah. And, and, and let me say this, let me say this where I'm going to leave this here. Accessibility. Who are you giving access to? Like, who, mm. who who are you allowing access to you? Right. Let me tell you something. That right there is like, it's like holy water. I'm like, okay, I don't have to text you back when you text me immediately. Mm-hmm. I can sit on that. We come back to that later. I'm busy. I, I don't have the space. Okay. Giving yourself the grace to not do sometimes goes a very long way. Throwing that... Throw that D&D on. Throw that Do Not Disturb on. Keep your peace. And my biggest theme for the last two years, prioritize peace. I love it. That's it. I love it. That's what I got for you. <laughs> Listen, that, that's a word in and of itself. <laughs> so we we had talked about 
earlier, or you had mentioned, you know, we work at these companies, but but many of us are thinking about other things, right? Yes. This is not necessarily the end goal. Do you yeah. have a list of next big ideas? Oh yeah, I mean, I'm working on a bunch of stuff at this point, mm-hmm. and 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 this is where the self care comes in. Yes. You know what? What is that thing in your mind that that pressure that that says, "Oh, you have to get this done today"? Do you? Mm-hmm. Um, but I digress. Um, I am. I've opened a, a podcast studio, so um, it's a part of my marketing consulting arm, which is called We Own Culture. I am working on a children's book about grief, mm. um, which I don't think that there are enough things to help kids get through grief at young ages, and so. Being a child of of, of that um, situation um, and seeing the need for that is definitely one definitely one I want to fulfill and 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 get more resources out there for for younger children you know teens and, and younger children um, to handle grief um, yeah those are the two biggest projects that I have right now the other ones I gotta hold close to the vest of course of course y'all y'all know about it when it's supposed to be known about it. <laughs> yes. So favorite self-care activity during this time? Um, I am a big, so I, I ride in Brooklyn. I've been riding my bike for the last like two years. Love riding my bike. That, that's been my biggest thing. Like I'll get on my bike on a day when I'm frustrated, I'll get on my bike and knock out 30 miles. Mm. Um, um, so that's my biggest active self-care thing. My biggest, that and boxing. Boxing is fun too. And um, the other thing I'm a big massage person. I'll go and blow some money at the spa. I got no problem doing that. Because when I leave, I feel good. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Skin glowing, muscles relaxed, good to go. Maybe go get something to eat. Good to go. I also take myself out on dates. That's a big that. thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, I love bowling. I'll go blow four hours at the bowling alley. Just kicking it by myself with my thoughts and just enjoying myself. So, um, I think people do really need... If they haven't figured it out now... Uh, or during the pandemic, they probably got to figure it out now, but like how to be with yourself sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? That That's a very important, that's a very important skill that I think that I'm hoping people got during the pandemic. But if not, being able to take care of yourself and go out and do things by yourself and be a little independent on some level, I think it's helpful because you get a better sense of who you are. And I really have learned in my circle of friends who is not like the ones who are not okay by themselves. With being by themselves. Oh, yeah. That you know has them. become abundantly clear in you know the last them. 18 months. It's like, wow, you can't stand stillness no. and solitude at all. Nope. Nope. And 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 you're just a like at the end of the day, when you close your eyes and you're in your head, it really is just you. And it's nice to be able to know your way around that mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Demarcus was right. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. <laughs> Why'd you sound reluctant? You're like, uh, did you doubt no, it? No, 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 not at all. I just, you know, people may say that I have an unbothered temperament. Ah. So sometimes it, it it comes across as reluctance. It's just me being super laid back. Got anyway. you. I'm, I'm just me. I'm just even. You know what I'm saying? I swear. Yes. Fair enough. Even I got Steven. you. Even um, <laughs> yes. So it is not reluctance at all. Like we've been doing you. this long enough that when he tells me, that somebody's going to be a great interview, I never doubt it. Like, it actually makes it. me more excited. Like, even if it doesn't outwardly show, because I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. If he says it's going to be great, it's going to be great. That's a wonderful skill set for law, though. So I'm, I'm with it. I, I, That's I, really I, what I it is. I get it. I get it. That is, I remember, like, my first 1L cycle of, like, mm-hmm. exams. And I was in my little study group, and one of my closest friends from law school said, cool as a cucumber on the surface, paddling like hell underneath. 
and that is li- literally yep. <laughs> what being a lawyer feels it's like, like a many duck days. in water. Yep. Yes, it's like you you know you got your poker face. Some call it posturing, and there's a lot going on right internally and everything that's happening. So I think that sort of spilled over. It's interesting. Um, and, and, Black yeah, and I think. That. Yeah. And I think that's kind of naturally who I have always uh-huh. been, even as uh-huh. a kid. I've always I was really quiet and kind of right here, not rambunctious. And the career has just really just exacerbated that for sure. I love it. Hey, look, you lean into something that you're already good at. I love that. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So tell people where they can find you online. Oh, I mean, I'm on I'm on Twitter, obviously, at New York City um, on Instagram at New York City. Um, someone will be offended podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and then also Marketing Misfits on both of those platforms as well. Love it. See, I see how you dropped the show. Like you got to drop these shows. You didn't mention you were a podcast host. Now you, you I mean, you want a volume too? I'm here. We could we could <laughs> rap about. It. We could do relationships. That's a, that's a long. That's a long. Time. Oh, all right. So that's a part. That's a part two. Maybe it's a, a crossover episode. A crossover I don't know. Episode. We gonna make it work. <laughs> But I got, I have some strong feelings about that. So Let's we can make it, it happen. Uh, that's going to be fun. Uh, my, my objective is to make sure I get you to react. So I'm, I'm with it. It's possible with that, with that, <laughs> that subject, it is, it is possible that I might react for sure. I love it. I love it. Well, this I has been it. great. This is wonderful. Thank you so much for the time. Awesome. I appreciate you. I'm a big fan of you and your brother. I wish you all continued success, blessings and abundance. You all are wonderful. We appreciate it. And as are you. Cheers. To our listeners, listen, this is not the end of the conversation between Stuart and I. I already know this. Like, it, the, the more is coming. You get that vibe, you know what's happening. Yes, but if ma'am. you have enjoyed this episode, like, share, subscribe, comment, send it to a few people, check out his shows and the work that he's doing as well. You know, we're all about supporting our podcast and cousins here at December 26th. So go ahead and subscribe to his show as well. And do what you know how to do. Rate. We all we are all about elevating our own. So please do that. And as always, you know what to do. You know what I'm going to say. Remember to be extraordinary on an ordinary day. Take care. Thank you for listening to the December 26th podcast. I am your host, Delisha. This episode was produced by Demarcus Adisa and music was provided by Thovo. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at December 26er. That's December 26ER.